Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. At the risk of a bludgeoning or a re-bludgeoning, I did a long spiel this week. Oh, as you know, we do best of the week, best of the vaults. I did a rather long one on from the river to the sea. And uh, people, many people said I sent it around. That was great. Some people, there's a Reddit page that is frequently taken to objections. And I read those objections. Anyway, I want to put it out there again. And uh, I'll just reemphasize that my thesis there wasn't that from the river to the sea is inherently eliminationist or not. You know what my thoughts are. It isn't inherently just ipso facto of the words hate speech. But my point there, and if you haven't heard it, I'm going to ruin it a little because I, you know, this is the journey. But my point there is the debate is over because our important institutions have decreed that it's allowed. Therefore, it shall be allowed in polite company. But keep in mind, you will be grievously offending some people who do not hear from the river to the sea as anything other than a horrible provocation. By the way, I was just thinking about this. Do you think if the phrase were Palestine will soon be free from the river to the sea. In other words, if there was a reversal, would it possibly scan as more offensive, more of a provocation? Palestine will soon be free. Oh, that sounds pretty good. From the river to the sea. Oh, you're saying the whole thing. I think it might, though I think that in the ears of most listeners, their priors will win out and define it however they want. See that? I did a 14-minute spiel and I amended it with so much blather leading into it. The spiel from the past that it reminded, actually, Joel uh, Patterson, senior producer of, was, and I agree with him, on June 5th, 2020, I talked about defund the police, which was being talked about and was in the air. I do think, as far as I know, I was earlier talking about this, raising objections to it. I think my objections raised objections within my last workplace, but that was pretty early, and I said, this is not going to work out well, and it's just a rather poor slogan and also a poor policy. Again, you don't need me to talk more about that also somewhat long spiel. Okay, here's both of those spiels. And now the spiel. I read an LA Times story titled, A Jewish Professor at USC Confronted Pro-Palestinian Students, He's Now Barred from Campus, Concerns Professor John Strauss Economics. When past a group of pro-Palestinian students staging a walkout, one yelled, Professor Strauss, shame on you. He wheels around and says, no shame on you. Hamas are murderers. That's all they are. Everyone should be killed. And I hope they all are killed. Harsh, but perhaps fair. From there, all hell, well, the campus version of hell breaks loose. But it's all on tape, those words I read to you. That's what he said. And once it became clear that's what he said, all the people saying that he said something else have been proved wrong. Still, the LA Times thinks to frame the story as, but at a fundamental level, the episode is also a debate over what exactly transpired. Except it's not a debate. I credit the LA Times for informing me of this. There's really no ambiguity. He said, quote, it's on tape. Hamas are murderers. That's all they are. Everyone should be killed. And I hope they all are killed. 
except a bunch of people edited out a bunch of words other than, I hope they all are killed. And then online said he was talking about all Palestinians. Some people online, including one Instagram post with millions of users, said he was talking about the students that Strauss teaches. Quote, one Instagram post shared to millions of users claimed falsely that Strauss told the students, I hope you get killed. Again, I know all this from the LA Times, which was very good at conveying facts, but has a weird allergy to conclusions. There is no debate over what was said. We actually have the facts, even if a lot of online users don't, to once more quote the LA Times, but as the clip circulated online, it was at times trimmed to a few seconds of Strauss uttering, everyone should be killed. The LA Times then gets into a side discussion of if this constitutes doctoring the clip, doesn't matter, irrelevant semantics. He he said Hamas should be killed. He was inaccurately depicted as saying Palestinians should be killed. People with millions of followers misdescribed his comments. Some were intentionally lying. And also, LA Times provided this. USC's Muslim Student Union issued a statement saying that Strauss was, quote, repeatedly calling for the murder of the entirety of Palestine and expressing, quote, a desire for the death of those supporting Palestine. That's what we would call not true. So Strauss is placed on administrative leave. He's barred from campus. He's barred from teaching undergrads. But within days, more and more of what really happened came to light. He said, kill Hamas, not kill Palestinians, not kill the USC Trojans. And he got most of his suspensions reversed, though he still is barred from campus. You you heard that in the headline. It's all interesting. I guess you might find it just humdrum campus insanity. But here's the part that grabbed my attention. It was tangential to all this. There was one paragraph about the campus protesters in the first place, and it said, the demonstration was part of a national shut it down for Palestine action and included a student walk out from class and march through campus and a rally where some students chanted from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. A phrase that is viewed as either a call for Palestinians to have equality or a call for the destruction of Israel, depending on the listener. Oh, so just another ear of the behearer type subjective debate. And I guess it is. I can't prove that from the river to the sea means to everyone saying it. Some people just like chanting things that rhyme. I am sure some of the chanters have never really thought about it. They are the true innocents in all of this. I also know that Rashida Tlaib, when criticized by saying it, even from very left-leaning Democratic colleagues like Jamie Raskin, She backtracked, she went online, and she said that from the river to the sea is, quote, a call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. I cannot prove she knows full well what it means and knows full well how every Jewish Israeli or Jewish American who cares hears it. But maybe she believes her clap, sorry, sorry, her clarification Maybe Rashida Tlaib, a federal legislator with the power of the purse, the power to fund Israel, a lifelong Palestinian activist, has never once contemplated the implication of the inhabitants of the land between the river and the sea, the land currently called Israel, becoming a Palestinian state. Not accommodating a Palestinian state, sort of a two-state solution, but that land becoming Palestine. What might that mean? I could cite the ADL, the American Jewish Committee, U.S. Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism, Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, calling from the river to the sea anti-Semitic, or in Lipstadt's case, referring to it as hatred that only makes peace harder to achieve. Because then that would be a discussion of the real meaning of words. And of course, words can have different meanings depending on the intention of the speaker. And we all must take into account the intention of the speaker. 
Except you may remember, we were told as an act of progress in 2020 that we should not take into account the intention of the speaker. The intention of the speaker was actively being discredited. I have in front of me an online training manual, a slide, anti-racism, intent versus impact, a tool in anti-racist education. Intent centers the feelings of white people. Impact centers the feeling of people of color, POC. Then we have Welcome's anti-racist principle. Welcome is the fourth largest charitable foundation in the world. They too put out a toolkit. And what do they say? Only outcomes, not intent, demonstrate whether actions and policies are racist. So there is a rebuke of some people say it's peaceful. Here's the UNC School of Public Health's guideline for anti-racist discussion. They write, if a peer is hurt by something you said or did, your intention is no longer the focus. The impact of your words or actions is more important. I could read a hundred more assertions that intent doesn't matter. The hurt it causes should, except when it comes to the Jews or Israel's. And then wait, hold on. I think there's something else somewhere else in the toolkit about colonizers and that takes precedence. It is cognitively taxing to live in a time when microaggressions are elevated as a cause to guard against that we should all have quite a considerable fear of giving offense. But the explicit aggression of a sentiment that says, get the Jews out of Israel, not necessarily via the sword, could be via El Al, but anyway, get them out. Well, that's one for the first time, maybe, where reasonable people can view it quite differently. So I know I could score a point by highlighting the supposed hypocrisy involved in all this, but then I would be hypocritical. You want to know why? I've never believed in a default to impact only evaluation, even if social justice says that they do. So I am not here to score a point about the hypocrisy of others. And I am not here to assert that the only interpretation of From the River to the Sea is a violent one or an eliminationist one. Okay, then what am I here to assert? It's this. It's that the debate is over and the Rashida Tlaib side has won. From the river to the sea has been made palatable unacceptable in all the spaces this side of a conservative temple. I know the Rashida Tlaib side has won because, well, because of what I just quoted in the LA Times. When they write that it is a phrase that is viewed as either a call for Palestinians to have equality or a call for the destruction of Israel, depending on the listener, that decides things. Add to that the Washington Post. They wrote a story from the river to the sea why a Palestinian rallying cry ignites dispute Why does it ignite dispute? The answer as to why it ignites dispute wasn't because, well, because the only reasonable inference is the disappearance of Israel as a Jewish state, which presupposes the disappearance of the Jews from the land. No, that wasn't the answer why it ignites dispute. It ignites dispute because people disagree about what it means. And to quote one subhead of this story, to some, it's a call for peace. Quote, it's a call to end the occupation by Israel, says Maha Nasser, an associate professor of Middle Eastern history and Islamic studies at the University of Arizona. And she says, a call for an ability to return, end quote, to areas from which Palestinians fled or were expelled. The Post then goes on to say that the Palestinian right of return is internationally recognized, which is not a lie, but it's more inaccurate than accurate. 
I guess it may be recognized in the reading of certain UN resolutions that don't have the power to grant the right of return. By the way, the right of return is also a policy that would mean the end of Israel as a Jewish state. But let's not get into the right of return. We have established that two of the nation's five most subscribed to newspapers, which are both bright lights in the liberal firmament, say that from the river to the sea may not be offensive because some people don't mean it that way. It's also very subjective. And given the imprimatur of these two newspapers and other similar institutions, everyone uttering it now has an out, an escape for any claim to accountability of what the words actually clearly mean. Because, quote, to some, it's a call for peace. So I'll take that one. Yeah, you're accusing me of saying something insensitive or anti-Semitic. No, no, no. I'm taking the to some, it's a call for peace. And also, if you're within the movement, you could see that I'm winking and nodding, right? The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, those two papers haven't weighed in with as explicit a permission structure as the LA Times and Washington Post, but the New York Times has at other times written stories saying the apparent offense given is not real. I'm thinking of a story from this summer, Kill the Boar song fuels backlash in South Africa and the United States. Right-wing commentators claim that an old apartheid chant is a call to anti-white violence. Um, the word kill being the verb. The word boar, meaning Dutch farmers. I can see why maybe right-wing commentators would say that. Subhead goes on to say, but historians and the left-wing politician who embraces it says it should not be taken literally. Kill the boar. Don't take it literally, says historians. Forget the left-wing politician. Historians, and not just some left-wing historians or historians who disagree with Nelson Mandela's horror at the slogan. Just historians. Kill the boar. Okay. From the river to the sea. Okay. Now let's check in. Just out of curiosity, humor me here. Let's check in with another slogan that might, just based on the words, seem more anodyne than those two. I don't think that the people that are posting all lives matter should be canceled. I think they should be educated. Black lives matter. White lives matter. All lives matter. I read a column on a liberal blog saying that he was using the language of white supremacy. Can you explain why people would be mad, mad at somebody saying all lives matter? Well, here on Facing Race, we're asking our experts your anonymous questions in a weekly segment we call Frequently Awkward Questions. Tonight's question from viewers. Why is there so much pushback when someone says all lives matter? Here to answer, Dr. Ibram Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Dr. Relina Joseph, ethnic studies professor at the University of Washington, and race educator, Dr. Caprice Hollins. You might not be surprised if you have even a passing familiarity with the work of those on the panel that none of them said it is a call for peace. And while all lives matter is frequently used as an obnoxious answer to the cry of black lives matter, I looked into it and saw unanimity of opinion on this point. I saw no outlets that shape opinion saying there is ambiguity to the question that all lives matter is an offensive thing. Let's take this New York Times story from June of 2020. Sacramento Kings TV announcer resigns over all lives matter. Tweet subhead Grant Napier used the phrase, which has often been used to dismiss the specific prejudices faced by black Americans during an exchange with a former Kings player. Or the 2019 Times story about Pete Buttigieg using the phrase four years earlier, quote, his use of the phrase all lives matter, which has often carried the connotation of ignoring the specific grievances of black Americans, has come under scrutiny. 
So to summarize, there are some sentiments that might seem all right, but no, they aren't. We have to tell you that. We need to make that clear. All lives matter is in that category. And then there are some phrases that might not seem all right, but they are. Kill the boars, one. Kill the, not kill the Jews. We can agree that not kill the Jews till we can't. That you can't say, but make the Jews go away, make the Jews give up their land, give up their rights. It's fine to call that peace. That's okay. It doesn't matter that Jewish organizations say it's not okay, that the anti-Semitism experts say it's not okay, that the listeners to it find offense, which is the standard of, I don't know, 45 minutes ago. See, also believe all women, also a thing that used to be de facto slogan until it wasn't for one bunch of people, don't know which one. Clearly, From the River to the Sea is about a change in governance, in rights, in freedom, in power. It is not a call for peace. That's not what it is. I am not saying that it is inherently a call to slaughter, but it is not a call for peace. Only now, I guess it is a call for peace. For the record, I think it is acceptable to say any of this, to say all of this. I am all for free speech. I just wish the meaning of the speech weren't obscured. And I especially wish meanings weren't obscured from the institutions we trust as the great purveyors and arbiters of truth. And now the spiel. You perhaps have heard calls to defund the police. It's a hashtag, it's a movement, and it's a tactic here described by Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors, heard on NPR's Here and Now. Um, The demand of defunding law enforcement becomes a central demand and how we actually get real accountability and justice because it means that we are reducing the ability for law enforcement to have resources that harm our communities. So how would this work? Or would it? Maybe it's just a slogan or a starting point or a piece of rhetoric or a negotiating stance or an Overton window tactic. I have the tendency, by the way, to evaluate such stances as they come, as they claim. So abolish ICE, I say, well, should we abolish ICE? Or complete carbon neutrality by 2030, or believe all women, or the no jails movement, I assess them at their word. Many of their advocates, by the way, are literally advocating for what the words do seem to be plainly saying. But then what frequently happens is we're told, well, the absolute claim, the claim that got your attention in the first place, it's, well, maybe it's more making a point because by, in fact, by no jails, we mean fewer jails. You'll hear that by defund the police, we mean some version of rethink and decrease funding for the police. So I thought it would be best not to just talk about the idea of no police getting a dollar next year. That does seem kind of crazy. But a proposal that is actually on the table in New York City. It's not zeroing out the NYPD's budget, but cutting the budget by a billion dollars. So how would this work? Well, the NYPD has a budget of $6 billion. It sounds huge, but the school district has a budget of $34 billion. Still, and and, and also, excuse me for my New York focus, um, but that is the police department 
uh, I have the most statistics on and that I'm most familiar with. And it's also generally true of not just New York, but Fresno, Fort Worth, Fargo, everywhere, that the biggest expense that any police department has is paying its police officers. New York, by the way, on a per-resident basis, um, it's not an exceptionally high amount of money that goes to the police. For instance, neighboring Nassau County has a budget, a police budget, of a little more than half the cities, although the population in Nassau is less than a sixth of the cities. The dominant expense in police budgets, as I said, are salaries, salaries of cops and civilians. New York City has about 50, over 50,000 combined civilian employees and sworn officers. And this means that they're funding, if averaged among all the employees, $120,000 per person. Now, of course, there are actually a lot of other expenses. They have 10,000 patrol cars. They have eight helicopters. They have 55 horses, but mostly the budgets for personnel. Rookie New York City cop makes 42500 After five years, NYPD officer makes 85000 with 27 paid vacation days and unlimited sick leave. And also with overtime, everyone makes at least 100000 I would say. It's actually a good middle-class salary, the kind of good middle-class salary with perks that you would want a society to be able to offer more people. But is it wise, the question is, for a society to offer it to fewer cops? In a way, it's indisputable that having a large police force in times of low crime doesn't make as much sense as in times of high crime, right? And we are at a time of low crime, generally nationally in New York City, very low crime. The question, however, is in order to have less crime perpetuated by the police, would having fewer police make a difference? Also, to be fair, we shouldn't just evaluate this on the basis of having fewer crimes committed by the police which also take into account, would the police be preventing fewer crimes? It's a very hard calculation to do. I'm here to do the easier calculation. Because it is true that if we cut salaries, you know, it wouldn't come from the highest paid, most experienced officers. It would probably come from a hiring freeze. And a new officer, well, that officer could get better training, training more in line with our values today. A new officer less likely to be stuck in the old ways. Perhaps just some progress would be made by the fact that newer, younger officers are drawn from by a more racially tolerant generation. Perhaps that would correlate to less brutal policing. Funding cuts would also likely take the form of thwarting new initiatives as opposed to eliminating ongoing programs. I went through the proposed budget of the NYPD, and when you look at the things that they're asking for more funding for, those seem exactly like the things that a decent society would favor. So in the executive budget for 2020, so this is the one that passed, they asked for $11.5 million to maintain fiber networks, the data center, and the public safety answering center. That seems good. The city council's budget requested $28 million to fund American with Disability Act renovations at precincts. A million dollars for 64 additional school crossing guards. The Special Victims Division, maybe you heard about it from the TV show, has a budget of $35 million to support 293 uniformed personnel as of 2020. That was up. They used to have only 226 uniformed personnel that were investigating, on average, 61 cases a year. Rape reports, sexual reports 
are up in New York City, they need to be investigated by more people. They also want more money to effectively investigate and catch those responsible for fatal and near-fatal collisions. They want an increase in funding for the Collision Investigation Squad. Then there's this. They also want money to train the part of the police that's the DHS, that's not Homeland Security, that's Homelessness Services. They have peace officers. They're not armed. And in fact, they can only detain someone with a warrant. They're, they're combination social workers, police department personnel, but they never got crisis intervention training, or at least 850 of the thousand homeless service officers never did. Crisis intervention training helps police officers properly respond to individuals struggling with mental illness or substance abuse. That's a new form of funding. So these all seem good, and I wasn't cherry-picking. I mean, there's a huge budgetary expense for overtime, and there's some new initiatives to try to curb overtime. But the new things that the police are asking new money for are mostly good things. Now, it's a well-known phenomenon that whenever a cut in a city budget is proposed, some alderman somewhere will cry, oh, no, this means we'll have to close down the firehouse, always the firehouse. And there is some of that going on here. All agencies have priorities. And if getting more sexual assault investigators is a priority, then that'll be done and they can find a way to do that. But in reality, fewer resources means that things like peace officer crisis intervention is a lot more likely to go than, say, eliminating vertical patrols in the stairwells of housing projects. There's a lot of evidence, in fact, that changing tactics and procedures really do lower police violence. There's a lot less evidence that lowering funding lowers police violence. To give one famous example of an infamous policy, stop and frisk. It was pretty much ended, and that was a fairly large success. It turns out there wasn't the need to frisk so many innocent and young black and Latino men. But what did work, what does work, is having the same number of police in those areas, not interacting in an aggressive way, but just being present. It doesn't cost more or less to stop and frisk, but if you cut money, you'd have fewer police officers and you could very well go back to the days of higher crime in those exact areas. Of all the reforms that I've seen proposed, just spending less money, it actually seems the least potent. That said, it would be good for society to be able to use that money for other things. Also, there are huge budgetary shortfalls in all cities brought on by unemployment, brought on by coronavirus. So it turns out that every department will have to spend less money. Still, efforts to reform should be as smart as they can be. And the phrase and even the reality of hashtag defund the police is not the smartest policy we could champion. And we've all seen with horror these past few days the danger of a blunt instrument being wielded indiscriminately. And that's it for the show. Joel Patterson's the senior producer, Corey Juarez, the producer. Monday, we shall talk to you, and I want to plug again that on Wednesday, 6 p.m., December 6th, I will be speaking at the Village Underground all about my trip to Israel. Please join me if you're in New York City, Village Underground, 6 on Wednesday. Bye.